Deductive Logic by George William Joseph Stock, M.A. Part 2 of Propositions. Chapter 3 of the Divisions of Propositions. 202. The most obvious and the most important division of propositions is into true and false, but with this we are not concerned. Formal logic can recognize no difference between true and false propositions. The one is represented by the same symbols as the other. 203. We may notice, however, in passing, that truth and falsehood are attributes of propositions and of propositions only, for something must be predicated, that is, asserted or denied, before we can have either truth or falsehood. Neither concepts or terms, on the other hand, nor reasonings, on the other, can properly be said to be true or false. In the mere notion of a centaur or a black swan, there is neither truth nor falsehood. It is not until we make some statement about these things, such as that black swans are found in Australia, or I met the centaur in the high street yesterday, that the question of truth or falsehood comes in. In such expressions as a true friend or a false patriot, there is a tacit reference to propositions. We mean persons of whom the terms friend and patriot are truly or falsely predicated. Neither can we, with any propriety, talk of true or false reasoning. Reasoning is either valid or invalid. It is only the premises of our reasonings, which are propositions, that can be true or false. We may have a perfectly valid process of reasoning, which starts from a false assumption and lands us in a false conclusion. 204. All truth and falsehood, then, are contained in propositions, and propositions are divided according to the quality of the matter into true and false. But the consideration of the matter is outside the sphere of formal or deductive logic. It is the problem of inductive logic to establish, if possible, a criterion of evidence whereby the truth or falsehood of propositions may be judged. See number 2. 205. Another usual division of propositions is into pure and modal, the latter being those in which the copula is modified by some degree of probability. This division is excluded by the view which has just been taken of the copula as being always simply affirmative or simply negative. 206. We are left then with the following divisions of propositions. Proposition, according to form, simple. Complex, conjunctive, disjunctive, universal, singular, general, according to matter, verbal, real, according to quantity, universal, singular, general, particular, indefinite, strictly particular, according to quality, affirmative, negative. Simple and Complex Propositions 207. A simple proposition is one in which a predicate is directly affirmed or denied of a subject. For example, rain is falling. 208. A simple proposition is otherwise known as categorical. 209. A complex proposition is one in which a statement is made subject to some condition. For example, if the wind drops, rain will fall. 210. Hence, the complex proposition is also known as conditional. 211. Every complex proposition consists of two parts. One, antecedent. Two, consequent. 212. The antecedent is the condition on which another statement is made to depend. It precedes the other, 
in the order of thought, but may either precede or follow it in the order of language. Thus, we may say indifferently, if the wind drops, we shall have rain, or we shall have rain if the wind drops. 2.13. The consequent is a statement which is made subject to some condition. 2.14. The complex proposition assumes two forms. 1. If A is B, C is D. This is known as the conjunctive or hypothetical proposition. Either A is B or C is D. This is known as the disjunctive proposition. 2.15. The disjunctive proposition may also appear in the form A is either B or C, which is equivalent to saying either A is B or A is C, or again in the form either A or B is C, which is equivalent to saying either A is C or B is C. 2.16. As the double nomenclature may cause some confusion, a scheme is appended illustrated below. 2.17. The first set of names is preferable. Categorical properly means predicable, and hypothetical is a mere synonym for conditional. 2.18. Let us examine now what is the real nature of the statement which is made in the complex form of a proposition. When, for instance, we say, if the sky falls, we shall catch larks, what is it that we really mean to assert? Not that the sky will fall, and not that we shall catch larks, but a certain connection between the two, namely, that the truth of the antecedent involves the truth of the consequent. This is why this form of proposition is called conjunctive, because in it the truth of the consequent is conjoined to the truth of the antecedent. 2.19. Again, when we say, Jones is either a knave or a fool, what is really meant to be asserted is, if you do not find Jones to be a knave, you may be sure that he is a fool. Here it is the falsity of the antecedent which involves the truth of a consequent, and the proposition is known as disjunctive, because the truth of the consequent is disjoined from the truth of the antecedent. 2.20. Complex propositions, then, turn out to be propositions about propositions, that is, of which the subject and predicate are themselves propositions. But the nature of a proposition never varies in thought. Ultimately, every proposition must assume the form A is or is not B. If the sky falls, we shall catch larks, may be compressed into sky falling is lark catching. 221. Hence, this division turns upon the form of expression, and may be said to be founded on the simplicity or complexity of the terms employed in a proposition. 2.22. In the complex proposition, there appears to be more than one subject or predicate or both, but in reality there is only a single statement, and this statement refers, as we have seen, to a certain connection between the two propositions. 2.23. If there were logically, and not merely grammatically, more than one subject or predicate, there would be more than one proposition. Thus, when we say, the Jews and Carthaginians were Semitic peoples and spoke a Semitic language, we have four propositions compressed into a single sentence for the sake of brevity. 224. On the other hand, when we say either the Carthaginians were of Semitic origin or argument from languages of no value in ethnology, we have two propositions only in appearance. 225. 
The complex proposition then must be distinguished from those contrivances of language for abbreviating expression in which several distinct statements are combined into a single sentence. Verbal and Real Propositions 226. A verbal proposition is one which states nothing more about the subject than is contained in its definition. For example, man is an animal. Men are rational beings. 227. A real proposition states some fact not contained in the definition of the subject. For example, some animals have four feet. 228. It will be seen that the distinction between verbal and real propositions assumes a knowledge of the precise meaning of terms, that is to say, a knowledge of definitions. 229. To a person who does not know the meaning of terms, a verbal proposition will convey as much information as a real one. To say, the sun is in mid-heaven at noon, though a merely verbal proposition, will convey information to a person who is being taught to attach a meaning to the word noon. We use so many terms without knowing their meaning that a merely verbal proposition appears a revelation to many minds. Thus, there are people who are surprised to hear that the lion is a cat, though in its definition lion is referred to the class cat. The reason for this is that we know material objects far better in their extension than in their intention. That is to say, we know what things a name applies to without knowing the attributes which those things possess in common. 230. There is nothing in the mere look of a proposition to inform us whether it is verbal or real. The difference is wholly relative to and constituted by the definition of the subject. When we have accepted as the definition of a triangle that it is a figure contained by three sides, the statement of the further fact that it has three angles becomes a real proposition. Again, the proposition, man is progressive, is a real proposition. For though his progressiveness is a consequence of his rationality, still there is no actual reference to progressiveness contained in the usually accepted definition, man is a rational animal. 231. If we were to admit under the term verbal proposition all statements which though not actually contained in the definition of the subject, are implied by it. The whole body of necessary truth would have to be pronounced merely verbal, and the most penetrating conclusions of mathematicians set down as only another way of stating the simplest axioms from which they started. For the propositions of which necessary truth is composed are so linked together that given one, the rest can always follow. But necessary truth, which is arrived at a priori, that is, by the mind's own working, is quite as real as contingent truth, which is arrived a posteriori or by the teachings of experience, in other words, through our own senses or those of others. 232. The process by which real truth, which is other than deductive, is arrived at a priori, is known as intuition. For example, the mind sees that what has three sides cannot but have three angles. 233. Only such propositions, then, must be considered verbal as state facts expressly mentioned in the definition. 234. Strictly speaking, the division of propositions into verbal and real is extraneous to our subject, since it is not the province of logic to acquaint us with the content of definitions. 235. 
The same distinction as between verbal and real proposition is conveyed by the expressions analytical and synthetical, or explicative and ampliative judgments. 236. A verbal proposition is called analytical, as breaking up the subject into its component notions. 237. A real proposition is called synthetical, as attaching some new notion to the subject. 238. Among the scholastic logicians, verbal propositions were known as essential, because what was stated in the definition was considered to be of the essence of the subject, while real propositions were known as accidental. Universal and Particular Propositions 239. A universal proposition is one in which it is evident from the form that the predicate applies to the subject in its whole extent. 240. When the predicate does not apply to the subject in its whole extent, or when it is not clear that it does so, the proposition is called particular. 241. To say that a predicate applies to a subject in its whole extent is to say that it is asserted or denied of all the things of which the subject is a name. 242. All men are mortal is a universal proposition. 243. Some men are black is a particular proposition. So also is men are fallible. For here it is not clear from the form whether all or only some is meant. 244. The latter kind of proposition is known as indefinite, and must be distinguished from the particular proposition strictly so called, in which the predicate applies to part only of the subject. 245. The division into universal and particular is founded on the quantity of propositions. 246. The quantity of a proposition is determined by the quantity in extension of its subject. 247. Very often, the matter of an indefinite proposition is such as clearly to indicate to us its quantity. When, for instance, we say metals are elements, we are understood to be referring to all metals. And the same thing holds true of scientific statements in general. Formal logic, however, cannot take account of the matter of propositions and is therefore obliged to set down all indefinite propositions as particular, since it is not evident from the form that they are universal. 248. Particular propositions, therefore, are subdivided into such as are indefinite and such as are particular, in the strict sense of the term. 249. We must now examine the subdivision of universal propositions into singular and general. 250. A singular proposition is one which has a singular term for its subject. That is, virtue is beautiful. 251. A general proposition is one which has for its subject a common term taken in its whole extent. 252. Now when we say John is a man or this table is oblong, the proposition is quite as universal in the sense of the predicate applying to the whole of the subject as when we say all men are mortal. For since a singular term applies only to one thing, we cannot avoid using it in its whole extent if we use it at all. 253. The most usual signs of generality in a proposition are the words all, every, each, in affirmative, and the words no, none, not one, etc. in negative propositions. 254. 
the terminology of the division of propositions according to quantity, is unsatisfactory. Not only has the indefinite proposition to be set down as particular, even when the sense manifestly declares it to be universal, but the proposition which is expressed in a particular form has also to be construed as indefinite, so that an unnatural meaning is impaired to the word some as used in logic. If in common conversation we were to say some cows chew the cud, the person whom we were addressing would doubtless imagine us to suppose that there were some cows which did not possess this attribute. But in logic, the word some is not held to express more than some at least, if not at all. Hence, we find not only that an indefinite proposition may, as a matter of fact, be strictly particular, but that a proposition, which appears to be strictly particular, may be indefinite. So, a proposition expressed in precisely the same form, some A is B, may be either strictly particular, if some be taken to exclude all, or indefinite, if the word some does not exclude the possibility of the statement being true of all. It is evident that the term particular has become distorted from its original meaning. It would naturally lead us to infer that a statement is limited to part of the subject, whereas by its being opposed to universal, in the sense in which that term has been defined, it can only mean that we have nothing to show us whether part or the whole is spoken of. 255. This awkwardness of expression is due to the indefinite proposition having been displaced from its proper position. Formerly, propositions were divided under three heads. 1. Universal. 2. Particular. 3. Indefinite. But the logicians, anxious for simplification, asked whether a predicate in any given case must not either apply to the whole of the subject or not, and whether therefore the third head of indefinite propositions were not as superfluous as the so-called common gender of nouns in grammar. 256. It is quite true that, as a matter of fact, any given predicate must either apply to the whole of the subject or not, so that, in the nature of things, there is no middle course between universal and particular. But the important point is that we may not know whether the predicate applies to the whole of the subject or not. The primary division, then, should be into propositions whose quantity is known and propositions whose quantity is unknown. Those propositions whose quantity is known may be subdivided into definitely universal and definitely particular, while all those whose quantity is unknown are classed together under the term indefinite. Hence, the proper division is as follows in the chart below. 257. Another very obvious defeat of terminology is that the word universal is naturally opposed to singular, whereas it is here so used as to include it. While, on the other hand, there is no obvious difference between the universal and general, though in the division the latter is distinguished from the former as species from genus. Affirmative and Negative Propositions 258. This division rests upon the quality of propositions. 259. It is the quality of the form to be affirmative or negative. The quality of the matter, as we saw before, see number 204, is to be true or false. But since formal logic takes no account of the matter of thought when we speak of quality, we are understood to mean the quality of the form. 260. By combining the division of propositions according to quantity with the division according to quality, we obtain four kinds of proposition, namely 1. Universal affirmative, A. 2. Universal negative, E. 3. Particular affirmative, I. 4. Particular negative O.
261. This is an exhaustive classification of propositions, and any proposition, no matter what its form may be, must fall under one or other of these four heads, for every proposition must be either universal or particular, in the sense that the subject must either be known to be used in its whole extent or not, and any proposition, whether universal or particular, must be either affirmative or negative, for by denying modality to the copula we have excluded everything intermediate between downright assertion and denial. This classification, therefore, may be regarded as a procrustes bed, into which every proposition is bound to fit at its proper peril. 262. These four kinds of propositions are represented respectively by the symbols A, E, I, O. 263. The vowels A and I, which denote the two affirmatives, occur in the Latin words affirmo and io. E and O, which denote the two negatives, occur in the Latin word nego. Extensive and Intensive Propositions 264. It is important to notice the difference between extensive and intensive propositions, but this is not a division of propositions, but a distinction as to our way of regarding them. Propositions may be read either in extension or intention. Thus, when we say all cows are ruminants, we may mean that the class cow is contained in the larger class ruminant. This is reading the proposition in extension. Or we may mean that the attribute of chewing the cud is contained in or accompanies the attributes which make up our idea of cow. This is reading the proposition in intention. What, as a matter of fact, we do mean is a mixture of the two, namely, that the class cow has the attribute of chewing the cud, for in the ordinary and natural form of proposition, the subject is used in extension and the predicate in intention. That is to say, when we use a subject, we are thinking of certain objects, whereas when we use the predicate, we indicate the possession of certain attributes. The predicate, however, need not always be used in intention. For example, in the proposition, his name is John, the predicate is not intended to convey the idea of any attributes at all. What is meant to be asserted is that the name of the person in question is that particular name, John, and not Zacharias or Abinabab or any other name that might be given him. 265. Let it be noticed that when a proposition is read in extension, the predicate contains the subject, whereas when it is read in intention, the subject contains the predicate. Exclusive Propositions 266. An exclusive proposition is so called because in it all that a given subject is excluded from participation in a given predicate. For example, the good alone are happy. None but the brave deserve the fair. No one except yourself would have done this. 267. By the above forms of expression, the predicate is declared to apply to a given subject and to that subject only. Hence, an exclusive proposition is really equivalent to two propositions, one affirmative and one negative. The first of the above propositions, for instance, means that some of the good are happy and that no one else is so. It does not necessarily mean that all the good are happy, but asserts that among the good will be found all the happy. It is therefore equivalent to saying that all the happy are good, only that it puts prominently forward in addition what is otherwise a latent consequence of that assertion, namely, 
that some, at least, of the good are happy. 268. Logically expressed, the exclusive proposition when universal assumes the form of an E proposition with a negative term for its subject. No, not A, is B. 269. Under the head of exclusive comes the strictly particular proposition. Some A is B, which implies at the same time that some A is not B. Here, some is understood to mean some only, which is the meaning that it usually bears in common language. When, for instance, we say some of the gates into the park are closed at nightfall, we are understood to mean some are left open. Acceptive Proposition 270. An acceptive proposition is so-called as affirming the predicate of the whole of the subject with the exception of a certain part. For example, all the jury except two condemned the prisoner. 271. This form of proposition again involves two distinct statements, one negative and one affirmative, being equivalent to two of the jury did not condemn the prisoner, and all the rest did. 272. The accepted proposition is merely an affirmative way of stating the exclusive. No, not A is B equals all not A is not B. No one but the sage is sane equals all except the sage are mad. Tautologous or identical propositions. 273. A tautologous or identical proposition affirms the subject of itself. For example, a man's a man. What I've written, I have written. Whatever is, is. The second of these instances amounts formally to saying, the thing that I have written is the thing that I have written, though of course the implication is that the writing will not be altered. End of chapter, read by Leonidas, for lit to go on the web at fcit.usf.edu.